Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. We're getting closer to the goal for our fall fundraiser, but we still need you to contribute to keep all of the great programming here at WDET going strong. The reason to give is really simple. You value all of the news, the music, the conversation you hear here on WDET, and all of those things cost money. All of the prep and on-air time needs support, and that support has to come from you, the listeners. Here on Detroit Today, we work all day, every day, making sure we're ready to bring you incisive, informative conversations. Last night, the producers and I were up late, maybe you were too, watching the Democratic debate and thinking about how to structure the recap we've got ready for you today. We've also been really hard at work preparing a really wonderful podcast series that features all the great conversations we had this summer during the WDET Book Club, which was focused on the Flint water crisis and Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha's book, What the Eyes Don't See. That podcast is going to debut this week. For me, all of this is work, but it's also a tremendous joy. The hour I spend each day with you on air, our listeners, is the best hour of my day every day. I believe that's worth supporting, which is why I'm a Leadership Circle donor here at WDET. If you haven't yet given this fall, now is the time. Go to WDET.org, click on the big red button at the top of the page that says Donate. And of course, thanks to everyone who is making listener-supported public radio possible here in Detroit. Up first today, the latest Democratic debate took place last night, and even more than usual, it came at a time of extreme turbulence in Washington with the impeachment inquiry in full effect. If you were watching as I was, you could kind of feel a tension uh, over the debate that we don't always see. As the Democratic field is taking shape and the 2020 race is closing in, there is, of course, a lot at stake and a lot to understand. So who came away as the night's big winner? And is there anyone who performed especially poorly? Were your most pressing questions addressed about the issues that you care about? And do you think we're getting closer to figuring out which of these Democrats ought to represent the party during next year's general election and take on President Donald Trump? That is where we begin the conversation today. And we want to hear from you. Were you watching the debate last night? What were your big takeaways? Who were the winners and losers? And what did you think of the substance of the things that people were talking about last night? One of the things that I actually appreciated about the debate was that it was a lot of substantive uh, back and forth between the candidates. We got to hear them really talk about the issues that they're thinking about and that they think we're thinking about. What did you take away from it? What did you take away from the performance of the various candidates? And what did you come away thinking about the Democratic's position on these different issues? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. We've got three great people here with us uh, today to talk about this debate, folks who pay lots of attention to these things all the time. Uh, Kim Trent is a Detroit-based writer and communications consultant. She is also a member of the Wayne State Board of Governors. Kim, welcome back to Detroit Today. Always a pleasure. Uh, Dennis Darnoy is a Republican political consultant who tracks voter data. Dennis, welcome back to the studio as well. Thanks for having me. 
And Jill Alper is a Democratic political strategist and media consultant. I believe this might be the first time you've joined us here on it Detroit is. Today. Thank you for Even though me. you and I have known each other a long time and talk about these things all the time, we'll do it on air today. Welcome to the studio. Great. All right, let's start with instant reactions to what we saw last night during the debate. Jill, uh, there were 12 people up there. I still think that's too many. I would <laughs> rather have five or six. But I have to say that I was glad to hear from most of the people who were up there. And I did think that this was a debate that got to really substantive issues. And I, I don't know, I feel like I learned a couple things about uh, people who I hadn't paid a whole, whole lot of attention to before. What was your reaction to the debate? Yeah, Stephen, I totally agree with that. I think the the healthcare has been such a big part of the previous debates, and it is a central issue for the people in the country and certainly people within the Democratic Party. Uh, at the same time, we, we heard a lot more about foreign policy, a lot more about economics, bread and butter type issues. Um, unfortunately, we had to touch upon impeachment and some other things. But I think what you really saw, for me at least, the headline in this de- in this debate was that sort of next tier, particularly people who um, have some relationship or stretch in the early states, Iowa, New Hampshire, kind of going for it with Senator Warren being um, kind of breaking um, up to and maybe a little past um, Joe Biden as the presumed front runner. Uh, you know, this was this was her having to learn how to parry and dodge and answer the tough questions. Whoever the nominee is going to be thoroughly, thoroughly vetted. Amy Klobuchar had a great night, but she's got a long way to go to win and to raise the money required to win. Pete Buttigieg, to me, is the stalking horse. Hmm. Uh, Kim Trent, what was your reaction? You know what? I really agree with Jill about the two candidates who I thought probably had the best night um, that I probably didn't have the strongest expect. Well, Pete Buttigieg, I think, has been good in all the debates. Um, Amy Klobuchar, I think, had the best performance that she's had so far. Um, I do think that it was more substantive than we've seen in the past. I think that the past um, debates have been way too focused on health care, although health care obviously is a very important issue. You know, climate change is probably one of the defining issues of our generation, too. Um, you, you could probably pick any issue that you can spend an entire debate on. But I think in the past that we probably given way too much focus on health care to the, um, you know, unfortunate, um, like we've, we've kind of uh, cast aside issues that are really important that we got to last night, like the economy. When you're in a state like Ohio, there's no way you can not talk about um you know, jobs and the future of jobs, the future of work, which I thought was really important. And I think that's why I think it's important for somebody like Andrew Yang to still be on the the, yes. the stage. No one thinks that he's going to be on the stage on <laughs> Election Day. But I think it's so important for him to be on the stage even now. Um, because, because you feel like he's injecting ideas that wouldn't otherwise be there? Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely he is. So, yeah. So I thought that that was um, – and, and I am really glad that – um, in the past, I don't think he he was kind of just this lone voice who was talking about um, issues like automation. And I don't know how you can not talk about even when they were in Michigan. That's yes. he was the only person who talked about yes. that issue. Yeah. Um, and we're ground zero for it. Um, so I think that I was really glad that in Ohio, at least it did come up and it came up um kind of in a substantive way. It did, it did. Uh, Dennis, uh, you come at this from a different perspective than the other two guests. Uh, you're a Republican political consultant. What, what what are you looking for in these debates among the opposition, and what did you see last night that uh, that stuck with you? Well, there are 
two things that I'm looking at. I mean, the first is to see which of these Democratic candidates is going to be able to play in Iowa. Um, I mean, anyone who follows these things know that Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, um, where you place in those races is going to have a large determination on who ultimately the candidate's going to be. I think there's a, an assumption right now that the top three in whatever form are going to be Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and Joe Biden. So who is going to be that other candidate uh, that steps up and and makes a splash? Um, and, and we saw, you know, it happened with John Kerry. We saw it happen with Bill Clinton, where they were sort of numerically out of it. And then after these uh, early state races, were able to uh, really jump their campaign. Um, secondly, what I'm looking at is, from a Republican standpoint, which one of these candidates really is going to have any appeal to uh, what would be considered moderate Republicans, blue dog Democrats, independents, are they speaking the language of those voters and have a message that is compelling um, and would resonate, or are they taking the message too far left and um, talking about things that would actually turn some of these voters off? Because ultimately, um, I think the election comes from the Democratic side comes down to defeating Donald Trump, and mm -hmm. how do you do that? Um, and their message has to be um, correct and right in order to do that. Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting tension that plays out, of course, in every election. Do you run to the base of your party or do you run to the middle to try to get votes from either the other party or from independents? And of course, that's going to play out in 2020 in a really dramatic way, I think. Uh, I want to start uh, the conversation here with a clip of Elizabeth Warren talking about the way that we deal with wealth in this country. My question is not why do Bernie and I support a wealth tax, it's why is it does everyone else on this stage think it is more important to protect billionaires than it is to invest in an entire generation of Americans? Thank you, Senator Warren. Okay, that was Elizabeth Warren talking about this idea that she would tax the wealthiest Americans a lot more than they are taxed right now as a way of paying for things that we need in the country, making sure that uh, people at the lower end of the economic scale get some of the things that they need. This is a central question in the Democratic Party. I think it is also a central question in this country. How do we treat wealth. Uh, this idea of a wealth tax is interesting, but I, I want to get your reactions to the idea of economic change, of shifting the burdens of the tax structure, of opening up opportunity for other people. Is this a winning issue for Democrats? And even if it's not, is it an important issue to push given the, the huge gulfs we see uh, opening up between the rich and the poor? Uh, Jill, I'll start with you. Sure. Well, it is sort of the question and and, and underlying um, kind of the psyche of our country is everybody is feeling like more and more and more is the answer and they're fighting to have more and things cost more and it's harder to get into college and everything seems unattainable, inaccessible, making ends meet um, <clears throat> and they're more um, legitimately poor people um, in, in our country. And so... Uh, <clears throat> It, it, it is a very serious question. The, the politics of it are very interesting, though, because for a lot of people in the middle class, when they hear vitriol directed toward wealthy people, everybody aspires to be wealthy. And 
middle class voters are a key segment mm-hmm. in terms of determining who wins, particularly in the Electoral College. And so what happens is that um, the tone and the tenor of the conversation can matter almost as much, if not more, than the policies that are being proposed to solve the issue. This country right now, if, you see, if socialism is not a word writ large that people are willing to embrace. Younger voters are having different attitudes we see developing, and there's still more to be written um, and to unfold in that regard. But what I would say is the upshot is that the idea of closing corporate loopholes and making everybody play by the same rule, that there's some equity, um, is very appealing. I think it's it's how the candidates get there and how they espouse the ideas in doing so, so that everybody has a shot at becoming part of the middle class or making their ends meet. I, I think that that observation about middle class voters aspiring to be wealthy is really important. And it's one of the things that Democrats often get wrong. They come after the idea of wealth and paint wealthy people as selfish or, or, or greedy. And it plays, it plays badly with people who say, well, I want to, I want to be that person. I don't want to you know, vilify that person. I just want the same opportunity for, for me. Remember Joe the Plumber? Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that that is so true. I, mean, I think, Jill, you're right on target with that. I mean, it's so tricky. And I think the Republicans have been so smart with how they label um, things like the death tax. So, you know, when you're talking about a wealth tax, um, An Americans value right? Wealth. Well, and they think that wealthy people. I mean, there's a reason Donald Trump got elected. There are a lot of Americans who really do equate wealth with virtue. Yeah, they think that wealthy people are good people. I mean, that I think that this idea that that people are buying into the idea that if you are wealthy, you are somehow inherently not deserving, or that you deserve to be knocked down a peg. That is not a widespread belief necessarily, and so even among Democrats. So I think that we have to tread lightly. Now, I think that there is more understanding when you talk about, you know, obviously Bernie Sanders has been very vocal about the top 1%, and, you know, certainly income distribution, when you see how wealth, uh, certainly anyone who's been paying attention to the way that um, wealth has been distributed um, over the last few decades, there has to be some concern there. Um, The fact that um, wages are stagnant or even declining or people, you know, there's no way that you can't in your own pocketbook feel it. But at the same time, we have to be smarter about how we package it. And so I think that if we have really strong packaging of the message and remind people of how they're living in their own lives mm. and how it's affecting them in their own lives, it can be a very resonant theme, but you've got to, we've got to be smart about it because I think the Republicans have been very good so, in, in framing it. So is Elizabeth Warren, who is really picking up where Bernie Sanders left off in 2016 and I think kind of reshaping that message, perhaps in a more acceptable or palatable form, is she over the line with middle-class voters when she says what she says uh, in that clip? Where, she, where she's saying, listen, why are you protecting the 1% at the expense of so many people in the middle? Shouldn't we be more concerned about helping out people who need the help and asking those people at the top to do better? Dennis, is, is that a message that's going to play to the middle? I, I don't think so. It's, it's hard when 
someone whose net worth is between five and eleven million dollars is talking to you know people whose income is much lower than that about redistribution of wealth. And I, I couldn't agree more with with Kim and and uh, Jill about how it's message. I mean, it's not just this generation, the millennials, you know, have this app that allows them to track their finances so they can retire by the age of 40. It's that type of aspirational goals mm. um, that is just inherently American. Um, so when you talk about this, it is, it's a message that doesn't apply to the center. I don't believe it plays to um, the younger generation. And again, coming from someone um, like her, it's, it's a very bitter pill to swallow. I, I think the, the point being is, yes, income inequality is real. Unnecessary barriers to wealth are real. And that's what needs to be tackled, not aspiring to be wealthy. Mm. Uh, as always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. Call. Tell us what you thought about last night's Democratic uh, presidential debate, but also call and tell us what you thought about the substantive uh, things that they talked about. Right now, we're talking about tax policy and the economy, the idea of taxing wealthy people perhaps more than we do now in order to be able to do some of the things that we need to do to help people in lower income brackets. Is that the right approach or should Democrats be focusing almost exclusively on the things that would lift people out of poverty or solidify the middle class and leave the talk about wealthy people alone? Because after all, so many of us actually aspire to be wealthy. Uh, are Democrats making a mistake by vilifying the whole idea of wealth? Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Um, I want to play another clip here uh, that I think gets to the same question from an opposite end. Uh, Beta O'Rourke was talking about the strike that the UAW has been mounting against General Motors. Let's listen to what he said. I've met with these members of the UAW who are striking outside of facilities in Cincinnati, in Lordstown, Ohio, which has just been devastated, decimated by GM and their malfeasance, uh, paying effectively zero in taxes last year. The people of Ohio investing tens of millions of dollars in the infrastructure around there. What they want is a shot. Um, and they want fairness in how we treat workers in this country, which they are not receiving today. Okay, that's Beto O'Rourke taking up for the idea of not just the UAW, but for unions in general, uh, a pretty sticky subject in, in, some in some politics in this country, certainly a backbone of democratic political power. Uh, what do we think about that approach to the idea of the discussion about wealth in, uh, in, in this country, Jill? Yeah, well, look, the, what made this country great is that there is a middle class. That middle class was was came together and as a as a as a reality here in Michigan, the idea that we didn't want people just to build the cars, we wanted them to be able to afford to buy the cars. And how did that happen? That happened because workers were able to collectively bargain and to say what they needed to do to be more productive and in return what they expected as a result of that commitment. These workers um and these UAW workers were at the heart of making the auto rescue 
possible. And they agreed to the terms by which they're working in order for the industry to climb and make its way back. The resources are there. They're selling more cars. They're making more money. Um, there's no guarantee of a pension. There's no guarantee of a job. Um, and at the same time, um, they're being asked to work for less as the cost of living increases. And so, and they have less rights in terms of the discussion. What Better Work said is spot on. And I think communicated in, in a way in which all voters and all people yeah. could hear the message. Is, is, is it better to to attack this question from that end saying listen we need to we need to take up for people whose wages are not enough for them to live on is that is that smarter than what elizabeth warren's doing kim i think it has to be i think we need to talk about all of these subjects and i do think that another thing that he that was kind of buried in what he said was talking about the amount of taxes that gm um paid and i think that was something that came yes. up a lot in the debate um, you said they pay zero tax. Zero. Right. I mean, and, and a lot of corporations are paying zero. I mean, right. a lot of the biggest corporations are paying zero. I mean, you're looking at Amazon paying zero, and then they're cutting their um, uh, their uh, health care for, for their the part-time yeah. workers. So for yeah. the most yeah. vulnerable workers. So, I mean, I think that those are the kind of messages that I think do resonate with people because – I think the message that if we're trying to shape a message, the message that I think reson- will resonate is people should pay their fair share. And that is not what's happening. I, I don't think that I mean, I don't think it's, you know, tax, tax the rich bastards. I think it's people should pay their fair share. Yeah. And, and, and people you know, are we just not saw, now. Right. And right. people aren't. I mean, I think when you know recently we saw that um, the top one percent is actually paying less than um, in taxes than um, I can't remember what percentage of the, the bottom I don't know, two thirds or something like that. Their their actual um, the percentage that they're paying is, is is substantially less. And so, you know, when you frame it that way, I think that that's a, a stronger argument than just saying because, and especially with um, Elizabeth Warren's very ambitious plans, when you're talking about Medicare for all and you're talking about the kind of investment that's going to require, you got to pay for that. We somehow. need more money. You, yeah. you need more money. You need revenue to do that. Yeah. Okay. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to get Dennis's reaction to what Beto O'Rourke was saying about GM and unions. We will also get to your calls, James in Sumter Township, Keith in Harper Wards, Ray in Woodhaven, Herman in. Birmingham. We'll hear from you next as well. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Listening to my fellow Americans, to those moms who demand action, to those students who march for our lives, who in fact came up with this extraordinary bold peace plan that calls for mandatory buybacks, let's follow their inspiration and lead and not be limited by the polls and the consultants and the focus groups. Let's Mayor do what's Buttigieg, right we have time to do what's right. Mayor Buttigieg? The problem is in the polls. The problem is the policy. And I don't need lessons from you on courage, political or personal. Okay, that was Beto O'Rourke and uh, Pete Buttigieg during the Democratic presidential debate last night. They are talking there about guns and gun buybacks and gun policy. We're going to get to that subject in just a little bit. Uh, my guests, though, are Kim Trent, a Detroit-based writer and communications consultant. He also sits on the Wayne State Board of Governors. Dennis Darnoy is here. He is a Republican political consultant who tracks voter data. And Jill Alper is with us. She is a Democratic political strategist, longtime political strategist, and 
and media consultant. Uh, we're talking about all of the things that the candidates got to last night. Uh, Dennis, before we were uh, headed into the break, we were talking about this idea of approaching the wealth gap and the anxiety that people have about the wealth gap here in the country from the perspective of working class people. Beto O'Rourke used GM and the strike uh, by the UAW against you, uh, GM, as a way of talking about that. Is that a smart way to get at this issue? Well, I, I think, you know, when we compare the Republican debates of 16, where you had, you know, again, 16 or so candidates versus what we saw last night, um, last night showed us the benefit of a substantive debate. And you heard it from Andrew Yang, Mayor Pete, Amy Klobuchar, where they said one view isn't the only view. And and so from that debate last night, we saw a number of different potential policy proposals attacking problems that are real and resonate with the voters. So I think last night's debate was uh, important from the standpoint of hearing many different solutions to problems that affect the entire country. Yeah. Uh, let's get to some of the calls. Lots of people want to talk about wealth and taxes in America. James in Sumter Township, what's on your mind? Hi, thanks. Um, hey. I was impressed last night with Amy Klobuchar. She spoke uh, passionately about her dad, the union member, her mom, the unionized teacher. And even though it was a Democratic debate, there wasn't enough discussion about unions, I'm afraid. Uh, unions fix a lot of things they're talking about. They talk about health care. Unions get you health care. They mm. talk about wealth and income inequality. Unions create equality, claw back those profits that they generate through their labor. So even among the Democrats, I think there needs to be more discussion of unions, unionization. Make America great again. Let's go back to when unions represented over a third of the workforce. Thanks. <laughs> James, uh, nice turn on the president's phrase there. <laughs> I really appreciate that. Let's go to Keith in Harper Woods. Keith, welcome to the program. I think there's a huge difference between wanting to be comfortable and wanting to be ultra wealthy. I think that most Americans want to be comfortable. They want to have a good house, uh, a good car, be able to go on vacation, be able to send their kids to good schools. I don't think most Americans aspire to be Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or Warren Buffett. Mm -hmm. So I am completely fine with taxing the ultra wealthy and their, you know, their wealth. I am completely fine with that. That's a really interesting point, mm -hmm. Keith. So, so am I right in assuming that you're okay with somebody who's worth, I don't know, 50, $100 million versus somebody who's worth $4 billion? Is you that know, where you draw the line? or? Well, you know, there's a huge gap between a hundred, you know, between like, you know, five or eight million dollars, you know, and a billion dollars. I mean, sure. it would take you like 25 years to spend a billion dollars if you spent a hundred thousand dollars a day. I mean, <laughs> you know, I'm not saying if somebody earns that, that's fine. I'm not saying we should stop people from trying to earn money, you know, but but the way we've set up the structure so that those people are not paying their fair share of taxes hmm. is is unfair and it's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, Keith, I appreciate the call and the perspective there. Let's go to Ray in Woodhaven. Ray, what's on your mind? I um I think one part we're missing from this uh, conversation is the idea of um responsibility or a moral backbone with the money you earn. Um when I was a very, very poor pizza boy, I had a uh, boss who was a Chaldean immigrant to this country. He came here. He made his money. He was very, very wealthy. And one thing that always stuck with me was around tax season. One time he told me, um, every time I get my taxes and I'm told I owe the government money, um, when I write that check, I always thank God because it means 
I, um, I am wealthy, and this country that has given me so much, I am now able to give back. And that sort of moral backbone with taxes, that obligation to one's countrymen and one's country, I think is still missing from this conversation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. That's a really, really interesting uh, uh, perspective. I'm glad you called and added that to the conversation. Uh, Guys, we've heard a, a pretty wide a range of uh, range of views there about about wealth. Uh, what do we think about this? Uh, these distinctions that the callers seem to be able to draw about what we're doing here are are most voters uh, in the in the place where they can make this decision uh, in in a way that that uh, that will make policy sense uh, in the in the election. Well, I think it's, well, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say I think it's all about nuance. So. Yeah, I mean, I think that your caller who's, who distinguishes between billionaires and millionaires yes. is right. I mean, I don't think that most people are walking around thinking, I mean, because we live in a, in a country now where we do have the millionaire next door. I mean, there are people mm-hmm. who are just good with their money, yeah. who work, you know, middle class jobs, who could be I mean, we've had this incredible easily, you know? economic expansion mm-hmm. that has made people wealthy, I suppose, right. in, in ways that don't quite get to the billionaire Correct. range, but, right. but make you them quite comfortable. Easily, right. And, and I don't think, and, and, you know, I don't think there should be a shame element to it. So I think that that's where you've got to be careful. Um, I think that in some ways, maybe Bernie Sanders has kind of tipped over that line where hmm. I think he does kind of engage in shaming with, you know, that, that he does kind of that marry. That shouldn't have that much Yeah, money. that I mean, yeah, I mean, that, there's this idea that there's kind of an inherent evil with money, that yeah. they, those things are intertwined. And yeah. I think you have to be careful about doing that. Go ahead, Dennis. You know, what was interesting is, is Ray was talking about um, morality. And that's something we heard Cory Booker uh, inject into the conversation last night quite, quite a bit. Um, and I think there is a place on the stage uh, for talking about things in moral terms. Yeah. Go ahead, so, Jill. Yeah. So a little bit back on more on the message specific politics, but relating to the conversation being had that apparently 0.01% of our country is worth $111 million or more. And then when you drop down to the next nine tenths, you're talking about families that are at $4 million or, or above. They're comfortable, don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But a lot of those, and there are millions of those families, literally, I think there are 400 or the 4 million people who fit in that category. They, they, live, they live in the places and they are swing voters that determine who our president is. And so the question is, it's this idea of people wanting government to play a particular role in their life. They don't want a nanny state, right? They want to make investments. They want to be responsible, or at least we hope that many aspire to be who the gentleman on the phone talked about as his boss, mm-hmm. um, to do to do their fair share. But talking about the ultra-rich is, talking, is different than talking about the wealthy. Mm-hmm. And so, as Kim said, mm-hmm. it is about nuances that candidates have. To, people are getting a feel for what kind of role does this person believe government should play in my life. And the last thing I'll say about this is that a lot of people who are in the working poor think of themselves as middle class, mm-hmm. right? And so when they hear a text in the middle class, they believe that means that. That's going to come after them, their pocketbook. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. All right. I want to change subjects here. Uh, we did hear that clip of Beta O'Rourke and Pete Buttigieg talking about gun violence and how they would approach it. I want to play another clip. This is Julian Castro talking about gun violence last night. In the places that I grew up in, we weren't exactly looking for another reason for cops to come banging on the door. And y'all saw a couple of days ago what happened to Tatiana Jefferson in Fort Worth. 
A cop showed up at two in the morning at her house when she was playing video games with her, ne with her nephew. He didn't even announce himself. And within four seconds, he shot her and killed her through her home window. She was in her own home. And so I am not going to give these police officers another reason to go door to door in certain communities because police violence is also gun violence. And we need to address that. Secretary Castro, thank you. You got a really great round of applause for that line about police violence also being gun violence. I, I was not surprised at the extent to which gun violence dominated the debate last night. I was a little surprised at how well some of the candidates connected that to other issues. Their Julian Castro connecting it to the, the, the racial issues in this country and the fear, the absolute fear that African-Americans have right now of police shooting them for just about any reason or no reason at all. Uh, Kim, uh, what was your reaction to the, the debates about gun violence last night? I got chills when um, Castro said what he said. And I'm actually really, that's one thing that I actually have found disappointing about these debates is that there has, there has seemed to be a reluctance to have that conversation. It's a tough conversation to have. Um, you know, I think most Americans have tremendous respect for the hard work of our um, law enforcement officers, but um, to be an African-American in the society right now um, is a scary place. Um, there, it is um, very disconcerting when you think that you can be in your own home and um, shot through a window because your neighbor asked for a wellness check. So I think that... Um, I would like to see more debate. Even um, the African-American candidates have not um, really had a full-throated, I think, um, conversation about um, what can we do as um, federal leaders to, you know, have this long overdue conversation about law enforcement and, and how, um, you know, there's always this conversation about training, but this runs deeper than, than training. Sure because does. if it were just about training, everyone be, would be getting shot through their window. Yeah. And it's, it, it's not it's not proportionate. Yeah. Uh, Dennis Darnoy, I was struck by the juxtaposition of what, for instance, Julian Castro said last night about gun violence and its effect on African-Americans and the the discussion about this spoof video of the president in a church shooting members of the media and liberal groups. One of the liberal groups that he executes in this in this spoof film is Black Lives Matter. Uh, I, I, as soon as Julian Castro was talking about that last night, that image flashed in my mind. Do Republicans have a real problem with this racial issue that is going to come back to, to haunt them next year during 2020 because of the guy at the top of the ticket, the things he says, the things people say on his behalf, and the things that he won't distance himself from? Um, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, obviously, um, Republicans and African-American voters have had a very tense relationship um, over, over many cycles. Um, you know, I don't think, and I've said this before on your show, I don't believe that Donald Trump speaks for all Republicans. Um, I don't think his views on race or on gender, um, sexual equality, um, I don't think he speaks for all Republicans and certainly doesn't speak for me as a Republican. So I, I don't necessarily, when you say, do Republicans have a problem? Um, well, I think the problem that a lot of people see is that Republicans aren't speaking for themselves on this. They're sure. letting him speak for them. He does these things. He says these things. 
they don't come out and say, this guy is not representing me. This guy is not part of the Republican Party that I think I want to be a part of. And so, I don't know, by by omission or silence, I, you know, I think a lot of African-Americans are now associating the Republican Party with exactly the things that the president's doing. And I understand that. And, um, you know, again, you know, it's, it's one of those things, you know, you can say, well, Look at someone like John James running for the U.S. Senate here in Michigan. Um, is he running as his own candidate, um, one that brings his unique views um, and experiences to the Republican Party and to the race, um, or is you know he just a, another you know person who's supportive of Trump? I would you know I would say it's the former over the latter. But I I, I concur that more Republicans need to say this isn't what we stand for. This isn't conservative. Uh, viewpoints. He doesn't speak for us on these matters. Um, and the truth of the matter is there are a lot of people right now within the Republican Party who are choosing power over purpose. And they know that if they speak out against the president, they will face a primary. Look at Mark Sanford, re- one of the reasons he's running mm-hmm. against him. So the, they, you know, history will judge them very harshly. But right now, what they are choosing is is to protect their own power over any sense of purpose. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation about last night's debate about gun violence, about the wealthy and their taxes. We'll also talk more generally about how the candidates did and where we go into the next debate. We also want to thank Judy in Farmington Hills for her sustaining support of WDED. Uh, Thanks to Marion in Sterling Heights for her very first gift to WDET. And thanks to new member Mark from Capistrano Beach, California. Somebody listening on the internet. That is outstanding. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking about last night's Democratic debate, what the candidates said, what it means, where we go from here as we get closer and closer to the real kickoff of the 2020 election season. We want to hear from you, too. What did you think of what the candidates said and did last night? What do you think about Who's maybe separating themselves from the pack, maybe becoming a front runner? Who's falling behind, not doing well enough in these debates, maybe to continue? As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You also can go to the WDET uh, Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll try to work you into the conversation. Also, remember, we are still trying to close out our fall fundraiser here on WDET. You can go to WDET.org. There is a big red button at the top of the page with a heart on it, and it says Donate. You can press there and keep all of the great programming you love here on WDET going strong. Uh, Let's go to Daryl in Detroit, who has a really interesting point about gun violence. Daryl, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Okay, so I think that I I liked a lot about what I heard, but the thing is, um, 
they need some bullet points, some things that they can say that are down and dirty, that are quick bullet points that uh, make it clear what their position is on on uh, on gun control. An example might be if you have a license. I have a license to carry. I tend to vote uh, liberal. I tend to vote progressive. I lean to the left. But I'm not uh, a crazy person. I'm level-headed and clear-thinking. If I have a license to carry and I have a license to carry a concealed I probably shouldn't own 479 guns, especially <laughs> if I'm the only person in my house with a license to carry. Hmm. I probably should be able to carry my guns. So if, if, if I go to uh, wherever a licensing board is and they say to me, do you have your license? I say, yes, I do. They say, just like an eye chart style. Um, uh, if I go to get a driver's license, I have to be able to see a certain distance with my eye chart. They should say to me, Here's 15 feet. Carry your guns. And then if I can't carry all my guns, they say, okay, now select the ones you'd like to sell. We're <laughs> going to give you the money. We're going to take some <laughs> of them away. Uh, Daryl, that's a really interesting point. I, although I, I have to say, I thought they did, you know, uh, you've got Beto O'Rourke talking about this gun buyback program, which is a specific program and a specific policy. Uh, but I but I hear what you're saying about the kinds of margins in which you can have regional reasonable discussions about guns and gun control and and we don't often get to that you're not you're absolutely right about that i appreciate the call and the comments let's go to felicia in ferndale felicia welcome to the show hi hey hello um i am just so mind blown that nobody has mentioned climate change at all and it is just so frustrating because none of these issues really matter at all unless we solve the climate change issues and especially because no real change is going to happen until the new presidency and there's so much that can happen within that time like the economy it just nothing nothing matters unless we figure out how we're going to save the planet mm. Felicia, so fair, i think, that's Bernard, a great, I think uh, bernie sanders did try to inject that a few yeah times but but night. but i think she's right that this debate featured a lot less talk about it climate yes, change than the previous ones. I don't know if that was intentional mm-hmm. or just, uh, you know, maybe they figured that uh, that they had already talked enough about it. But but I do think that there's a real question about what role climate pay- change will play in, in the electoral decisions that people are making. There are a lot of people who are really focused on that issue. Jay Inslee was yes. a candidate who mm, yes. was only talking about right. climate change yes. mm-hmm. he's not on stage anymore and right. i don't think he's even he's even running is that maybe a dead issue in the in the party oh god i hope not no, <laughs> yeah, can't me, be. no me 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 too me too um i think i think it's probably getting play on the ground in yeah. iowa but it is an, a, an issue of importance for our world not just our nation i appreciate the comment uh, dennis how does this issue play on the other side of the aisle the climate change question you've got a president who says it doesn't exist uh, are, are there Republican voters who might say, hey, I can't support this president because of that stance? I think, no, uh, I, I don't I don't think that's the case at all. Um, I think that climate change, while um, a serious issue in terms of the overall debate, is one that is uh, more focused or more talked about within the Democratic primary. Um, things along the lines of national security, 
um, economic growth. Those are the things that are getting more of the play w- among Republican voters. Um, and I think, again, the Republican voters that may be open to looking at a new candidate in 2020 are, are more interested in hearing how those things will be affected um, rather than climate change. Well, the thing is, climate change has economic growth and <laughs> national <laughs> security, security issues, for sure. You're, and, sure. I mean, yeah, without yeah. a doubt. And, and right. when you look at, you know, rising uh, ocean levels and how that's yeah. going to affect, you know, uh, all the millionaires right. down in Miami and, yeah. and all the beach. I, mean, or, I, I just yeah. think the caller is absolutely right. If we don't have yes. a planet, it really doesn't matter who the it president doesn't. of the United States is. So. <laughs> absolutely right. Right. Uh, again, thanks very much uh, for the call and the comments, Felicia. Let's go to Herman in Birmingham. Herman, welcome to the show. Well, well good morning. Uh-huh. I thought it might be better to to couch the issue about wealth and uh, equalizing taxation when when you have a president laughing and bragging that he doesn't pay taxes because he's smart, he's wealthy, or T-Bone Pickens claims that his secretary pays more in taxes than he does. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably more the issue than who's wealthier than who's not wealthy. It's just spreading out or equalizing the tax burden, which which may be a better way to couch it and more tolerable or palatable for the uh, general public. Mm-hmm. Herman, a uh, really great, uh, really great uh, point there. Mm-hmm. I'm glad uh, you called to make it. Go ahead, Jill. Yeah. And just just to, to piggyback on that, it's look, we're in a box as Democrats because people believe when we talk about taxes, we want to tax people more. And the big part of this is talking about taxes for what? It's talking about investments and having a comprehensive economic plan. Mm-hmm. And I think that is something that has been lost in the debate and is hurting our candidates overall. Uh, again, Herman, Great call, great uh, comments. Let's go to James in Dearborn. James, what's on your mind? I'm concerned that in order for us to overthrow dictator Trump, we need to (laughs) get the gun topic to not get the constituents of my UAW brothers and sisters. They are very pro-Second Amendment. And if we continue to talk about banning guns, there's bigger issues that we got to worry about. You are scaring away a lot of middle-class voters that I work with. Huh. James, I'm I- an NRA life member, but I am as liberal as it gets. So you need to figure out, the Democrats need to figure out how to appease the fear of gun craziness in this country without making all of my coworkers think you're taking their guns. Wow. James, Keep saying I'm, that, I'm, they're going to vote for the Nazis. Yeah. James, I, I, I really appreciate your call and your comments because I think uh, just your existence is a real challenge to the idea of, of democratic politics on on guns. Um, Dennis, you know, that's that's uh, that's kind of what you've been pointing to almost all hour here. Yeah. I mean, I, I think James is spot on. I, I you know, and, and Kim and Jill said this at the outset. It's it's how you are messaging these things. I think there's general agreement as to what the issue and the problems are. Um, but you know, he James is spot on when when you have these voters. And remember, Trump won Michigan in large part by taking votes from Macomb, from Bay, from Saginaw counties. Um, when we were tracking the absentee ballots during that cycle, we saw a huge number of male Democrats voting. And at the time, the assumption was because of their party affiliation that it was going to be to the benefit of Hillary Clinton. But in you know, in reality, they were turning out for for Donald Trump. So yeah, I think. Again, the they have the uh, the right ideas. I think they have the right topics to talk about, but they need to message it 
in such a way that it has greater resonance and greater appeal. And I always think about you know uh, Abraham Lincoln's cabinet, where he had disparate voices. Sure. And I think a lot of the Democratic candidates, and this would apply to Republicans as well, need to have on their staff people who are willing to talk as a Republican would, or if a Republican, mm-hmm. as a Democrat would, yep. in order to reach out to these yes. voters that are going to swing the election. Yes. I mean, I think one of the most ineffective moments last night, you know, as far as trying to protect a position, was Beto O'Rourke, O'Rourke trying to explain his gun buy, buyback. Yes. Mm. I mean, he just couldn't do it. Yeah. And I think that, <laughs> and, and by the way, I am yeah. someone who is anti-gun. I'll just put it out there. I just do not, I think that our kind of gun obsession in this country is crazy I mean, we just and, and i but you I still understand. don't buy his his program no well, i mean i just i think you but I, yeah but i appreciate our culture i understand that we have a culture where the second amendment is 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 deeply valued and people think that they people have a right is enshrined in the constitution that you have a right to own a weapon i just think that there the things that we have common ground on we've got to figure out a way to message yes message it so that it's palatable and and we are able to get to solutions yeah. like right. things that we've done before like banning assault weapons right. we've done that before right. That's right. Joe Biden, and it worked Joe Biden and it worked a lot about that yeah it's look we need to be talking about gun violence prevention mm-hmm. rather than gun control correct um all there right you go. before we run out of time i'm going to put everyone on the hot seat here. Uh, <laughs> tell me who's in the driver's seat now in this Democratic primary. Who is the person to beat? Who's the person with the momentum? Uh, and did it change last night? Jill, I'll start with you. Right now, Elizabeth Warren has the momentum. Kim? I agree. No, oh, hands down she does, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, what about my uh, my Amy Klobuchar obsession? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, each debate, I, I, I mean, this is someone I know less about than the other mm-hmm. candidates from the past, but each debate she says something that I'm like, wow, that is the most perfectly sensible uh, position I've heard. Why can't she get traction? I mean, the question for her is, I think, a matter of time. Does she have the time to make that finish in Iowa that makes people stand up and, and take a look at her and say, okay, yeah. I mean, Mayor Pete did a great job of basically being Joe Biden um, and <laughs> taking Biden's positions and being more coherent with it. Um, you know, Amy uh, stepped up and, and showed that she can go toe-to-toe with the candidates on the stage. Um, but, you know, it's interesting now that Bernie is going to be coming out on Friday with, you know, an endorsement from AOC and that tribe. I mean, that's clearly going after Elizabeth Warren and that vote. So mm-hmm. I think we're going to see over the next month some some interfighting, if you will, for for voters. And, and that will shake it up before the next debate. OK, Kim Trent, Dennis Darnoy and Jill Alper. It was really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you. All right. That's going to do it for me today. I'll be back tomorrow for a conversation about a report that shows Michigan has the highest percentage of black children living in concentrated poverty. Also, we want to make sure to thank Mary in Rochester Hills for her very first gift to WDET during our fall fundraiser. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk more tomorrow.